0: Um we're going to uh, be in First Kings chapter 12 sort of uh I mentioned last week I was going to do this short teaching series that I've called What in the world is going on? And uh the the real question there is as we look around the world like what what is going on is is there any way we can shine some light on uh and make sense of things that just seem not to make any sense. And so I'm taking a little bit of a different approach in this series. Sometimes I have started out the year, uh, you know, talking about just what our priorities are going to be in terms of ministry, you know, and programs and that sort of thing. And I I sort of entered this year with a, a little bit of that interest, just looking into the year. And what do we see uh, ahead of us as far as church life and ministry and so forth? And I've been saying um, we're ready to re-engage, right? Like let's just let's just leave 2020, 2021 in the rearview mirror and let's just move on. Like we're kind of uh, in, in that in that frame of mind. But as we do, what it what might we understand about the world that it is we're re-engaging? So that was sort of the interest that I brought. To um, why I wanted to start here, so like I said, it's a little bit of a different um, approach here. So rather than you know just uh, preaching through the text of 1 Kings twelve as such, I'm uh, kind of looking at the broad narrative of that chapter as well as the background to it, and drawing some principles and observing some patterns that were at play then that really have been at play down through history and, and continue to be um, in our day. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> if you didn't uh, hear me at the outset, if you, if you came in late and I was saying, I've been sick this week and my head is foggy, I'll, I'll uh, share that so you know that that's true if you didn't hear me say it the first time. And then I also say, I shared to somebody uh, coming in, that it's the strangest uh, feeling, and I, I don't know what exactly this is, but it'll happen sometimes where I, I, I literally feel intoxicated. And so, I mean, again, if I if I say something really outlandish, you can say he's just drunk. You know, don't <laughs> listen to him. Um, but we're sort of camped out here in First Kings twelve again, as a as a really helpful, I think, illustration. Of any number of things, actually, First Kings 12 is a pivotal chapter uh, in the Bible because of what transpires there. But having read all of that last week, I'm not going to do that again today, so it's sort of like a, a part one, part two, part three of the same uh, sermon series. I would encourage you to go back and read that and even read the chapters preceding it and, and following it, perhaps. So you get the kind of the idea of the whole narrative, but I'll, I'll just make reference to it this morning. But again, there's a reason why I wanted to do this series as we reengage God's world, because some people, uh, I think, really want us to go back, us like as a just as the country and the world, you know, go back to the way things used to be, and I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't mean like as in 2019, I'm, I, I really mean even the good old days, how, whichever old days you would uh, think of as the good ones. But like I said, that, that, that history rolls forward, not backward, and, we, and, and we, we can't make it go back to the good days as we think of them. But I think that's the way some people are inclined. Some people are just deeply discouraged it's just been a, it's just been a despairing sort of season of time. Some are, you know, downright apocalyptic in their thinking. I mean, you know that, uh, and for fair enough reason to a certain extent, right? But just thinking, um, surely this is this is the last days, and Jesus is coming back. You know, as far as I'm concerned, any day's a good day. Today would be a good one. There's clouds in the sky today. Those would be fine clouds for him to show up on, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, you know, some people get that way that like they, they are so convinced that um the end is coming and they and they're, and they like prep so you know so hard for that or whatever that they're almost disappointed when the world doesn't come to an end. I I actually had this experience uh, one time. A couple of years ago, Monica and I took a trip up to um, Virginia. We stayed in a a cabin for a couple of nights. One of those just, uh, you know, quick getaways sort of thing. We stayed in a little cabin on a 200-acre cattle farm, a working cattle farm. And they had converted a couple of the buildings, grain shed, and like the carriage house or whatever. They converted those to like Airbnb kind of places. So it was a really quaint little place, and we we, we had a great time there for a couple of days. The owner took us and showed us on the back side of the property there a bunker. And he opened it up and like we didn't go down into it, but you could see where you could you could climb down into a. a a bunker there and he said the previous owner had bought that farm back just leading up to y2k remember that year 2000 and and uh we were sure that there was going to be a sort of apocalyptic sort of event and uh and they bought this farm and 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 uh put a little bunker in there, whatever. And then Y2K was a big nothing burger, right? You remember that? Like we did a lot of work and maybe, maybe some of that's because we did a lot of work to prevent whatever disaster could have come from it. But it was a big nothing burger. And he said that the guy was really like dejected. He was kind of disappointed. And he, and he, and he sold that uh, property for quite a steal. And so this couple moved in and they, they made it into more or less an Airbnb. As some people are that way. And so um, I think there are things out ahead of us, as I alluded to last week, that really uh, there are reasons why people might be watchful and wise. But I want to also offer a reason why I think we, we can be optimistic. But certainly whatever I say, I'm not implying that you ought to go build a bunker. I'm not implying you ought not to either. How about that? I make no claims uh, one way or the other as to whether you should build a bunker. But I think there is reason to be optimistic, and, and, uh, and, and I want to uh, share some of that. Um, to, to again, shine some light on some of what is going on today, what has gone on uh, historically just over and over as far as just trends and patterns. But I said with that uh, with that in mind, last week I said that um, as we unpack some of this, our battle cry or whatever our motto needs to be, we will not fear, we will not lose heart. Is that up there on the screen? Let's say that together. We will not fear, we will not lose heart. You know, you can read... Um, certain passages in, uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where uh, among the things that Jesus says, when you see the signs of the times, look up, because your redemption is drawing nigh. So the eyes of God's people ought to be inclined that way, oriented that way, that we look, that we look up. But I think it's, uh, there's even reason for us to be hopeful uh, in 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 other regards, again, there here goes my slow buffering brain again. Last week we took this really brief survey uh, of the First uh, Kings chapter twelve, where where we see the events surrounding the division of Israel into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So if you if you have a Bible and open it up to chapter twelve, that might be helpful. Just as you you've got you can glance down and kind of get a view of the narrative. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that, just so um, this has this week and next week have stand some chance of making sense. Like I said, I'm not sure this this morning is going to make sense anyway, but. Um, but, but that, that uh, message will be important as part of this. But well, we took this really brief survey of that chapter. And, and what happens is, Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son, he becomes king. Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king. A delegation goes to Rehoboam. And le- the delegation sort of says Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel. But Jeroboam... Uh, goes as sort of the leader of this delegation making an appeal to Rehoboam. And they ask him, I'll tell you in a minute, uh, hopefully, who Jeroboam, a little bit more about who Jeroboam is, but they, they ask him to lighten the load a bit. Solomon had built really a, a majestic sort of kingdom, a, a temple Palace gardens, uh, parks, etc. But he didn't do it himself. He did it at the hands of forced labor. It's sort of like, if I've understood it right, like being drafted into the military, except you're drafted into civil service, so to speak. And he and and it was hard labor. And so they come saying, hey, uh, lighten the load on us a bit. Rehoboam, um, you know, has the counsel of the old men who say, yeah, that would be a good idea. If you do that, they'll serve you forever. But he listens to the younger men, not the the older, wiser men. And he says, you think he was tough, I'm going to really stick it to you. That's my paraphrase. But anyway, he, he, uh, he, he's going to say, I, I'm, I'm doing it just the way we have done it, but even worse. Like, I'm, gonna, I'm Solomon 2.0. And so Jeroboam leads essentially 10 tribes uh, north. They, they, they just go establish another kingdom. And you remember, then Jeroboam ends up inventing worship for them. Just reinventing worship as if that's his to do, and I mentioned, you know, that's really uh, could be a sermon all by itself. That we don't have the liberty we think we have in that regard. But but Jeroboam was a a very capable, talented guy. Apparently, it refers to it back in uh, chapter eleven. If you have a Bible open, back in verse twenty eight of chapter eleven. To the man Jeroboam was very able. When, he saw, when Solomon saw the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. A very talented guy whose who's Solomon uh, recognizes and gives him this great responsibility. And then a prophet comes along and tells Jeroboam that God is going to give him 10 of the 12, 10 of the 12 tribes. That God's going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon, from his house. And he's going to give him ten tribes. And so Jeroboam then actually rebels against Solomon. It appears to be, you know, one more picture of trying to do God's will my way, so to speak. Where, you know, God says, I'm going to give you ten tribes. And Jeroboam takes them. <laughs> that's kind of what, what happened. So uh, he rebelled against Solomon and, and ends up having to sort of flee the country. So he's coming back after Solomon died. And that's where this delegation is formed. And then he separates with those uh, tribes. The other thing you'll remember is that Solomon had really brought this about himself because he had taken for himself 700 wives and 300 concubines and they had turned his heart toward other gods idolatry just outright idolatry just as God warned him he would and so so God told him that this was going to happen as uh, really a judgment against him. Now, that is to say, when, uh, when all of this unfolds, what, what, what you see here is it's a result of Rehoboam's unwise decision. It's a result of Jeroboam's self-interest, right? Those are... Those are the means that bring about this end, but it is also a result of Solomon's sin the generation before. Solomon's not Solomon's dead at this point. but his children and grandchildren will be paying some of the consequences of that decision, Which is to say that, uh, that when crisis comes around, there is no living generation who has their hands clean of it, that everybody has had their contribution uh, to it in one way or another. But that was, that was sort of the survey of it. And our primary interest was to observe the pattern that was at work over the course of history um, in, the, in the lives of David and Solomon and then Rehoboam, and specifically... That there's a pattern uh, that, that illustrates how generational change, I said, is the wheel that drives history forward. The general, generational change is the wheel that drives history forward. We saw that David's generation was a wartime generation, that they were defined by struggle, strength, and sacrifice, that Solomon's generation inherited really an era of peace, and they were defined by peace and prosperity and productivity, and then Rehoboam's generation saw the kingdom torn apart, and they were defined by crisis, conflict, and calamity. And it's just uh, again, you can you can see the parallels, um, I think, pretty readily in uh, in our own culture, and there's a reason for that, um, because again, there there are these there are these sort of patterns that show up from. Uh, repeatedly, but in the case of the people of Israel, their society was fundamentally reordered like geographically, politically, religiously, socially, all the way around. And So I wanted to um, again sort of expand on that a bit and and, uh, kind of share an illustration of that or an illumination of that, I guess, that generational patterns like this have been observed across cultures and all down through history. Um, and, and in fact, you, you really see other references to it even in the New, New Testament, these kind of dynamics going on, or, sorry, in the Old Testament. But, all, but in cultures you know, a, a, around the world and down through history, um, there, there have been these kind of observations made about these uh, generational patterns, and it was the subject of a couple of books written in the 1990s by co-authors uh, uh, Bill Strauss and uh, William Strauss and Neil Howe. In fact, the genesis of this uh, message, I suppose, some, some of this uh, thought process began germinating exactly a year ago last week. Uh, as it turned out, I looked back at my notes and saw that, that I, I, I preached a message on contentment at the beginning. of We were in Philippians chapter 4. At the beginning of the message, I just made reference to, uh, I had just done the funeral for a great aunt who died at the age of 94. She was part of the greatest generation. And I just said, you know, in, in my preparation of the remarks uh, for her service, it just occurred to me in her lifetime um, how much change had taken place. That that from a generation that uh, went through the depression, fought World War II, and then built, essentially, the the world that we enjoy, uh, in in a manner of speaking, the country that we enjoy in the years following that, or kind of laid the foundation for it. That you have a generation characterized by that kind of sacrifice, that as she dies, as she died, um, there's emerging a generation that wants to throw it all away. And again, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing in that regard, but I'm just again, it was not a criticism or anything. It was just an it was an observation that was striking to me that in the span of one lifetime. And at the end of that service, a uh, church member came up and and asked me if I had ever heard of this particular author or read the book, and uh, and I hadn't. But anyway, that was uh, Neil Howe and uh, and Bill Strauss. The, the the first book in 1991 was called Generations, and it was really an, a telling of American history as it was experienced by successive generations. So rather than just a strict chronology where you talk about the events, you know, this war and that president and this kind of thing. It was uh, history as any given generation lived it from childhood right up through old age. They were interested in looking at history that way. Uh, That was the book, by the way. They were the one who who named the millennial generation millennials in, in that book. But then they wrote a follow-up book in 1997 called The Fourth Turning. And the big, sort of the big idea of the fourth turning is that every 80 or 90 years or so, history goes through a a cycle of, a full cycle of, four successive generational turnings, as they call it, each lasting roughly 20 to 22 years. And again, you would see... um, and you would, you would see references in the, in the Bible that just uh, sort of touch this reality. And, and, uh, and you'd see references in other cultures and that kind of thing. It's not like that's a, because the Bible says it, uh, you know, that something about 80 years or 40 years or whatever, that we, we draw great um, vast conclusions from that or anything. But it's just this, this has been present all throughout history. That, that every 80 to 90 years or so, there is this uh, full cycle of generational turnings r- lasting roughly 20 to 22 years. The 80 to 90 years corresponds loosely with the long life of an individual. Okay, I mean, so that, in other words, as uh, somebody who lives a very full life, um, now that that's getting a little older, uh, right, used to be maybe seven to eight, 80 years, but 80 to 90. And then the 20 to 22 years, again, is something that we we recognize um, as it almost structures the way that we uh, live in our culture as well. That from birth to around age 21 is youth, and then from 21 to 42 or so, is uh, young adulthood and then midlife from, you know, the early 40s to retirement age and that sort of thing, and then our senior adult years, so those, those different stages of life. And they, they basically trace um, these patterns through history and observe that the times shape a generation and then the generation shapes the times. Okay, the time, the times, that somebody, particularly the times, the period of time that, that uh, a generation is born into and raised in, in their formative years, that that shapes the generation in a profound way. Then that generation ends up shaping the times. Um, so I want to I want to just uh, sort of walk through that, and I apologize for the. My, my own mental rambling here, but um, like I said, I there were things here that I've observed just anecdotally over the years. I worked in schooling, Christian schooling for a number of years. I worked with different generations of parents. Anybody here who's been a school teacher for a lot of years saw changes transpire in the in the relationship with parents, even if you didn't know what was going on. Like you didn't you didn't really know. Th- what explained it, you just realized that this dynamic was happening. And it was something that I had observed um, anecdotally and then found uh, this to be very, very illuminating. So let me see if I can go through this uh, quickly. And, um, yeah, so we got this visual up here. But the first turning, uh, they say, is a high. in our, in our most recent, uh, the most recent high in American history was post-World War II, 1946 to 1964. There may have been a few in here who were children during that era, but we even think back on that, even people who didn't live it, think back on the 50s as sort of a golden age, right? Because it was, that it was was a high. This is a period when institutions are strong and individualism is weak, actually. There's There's a great, strong sense of community. And that was true during that era. And society's confident about where it wants to go collectively. The second turning, they say, is an awakening. And this is an era when institutions are attacked, essentially, uh, in the name of personal and spiritual autonomy. So people, they don't like the, uh, the institutional control. They don't like... Government's hands in their business, so to speak, and this during these periods of awakening, the the uh, the individual is begins to be elevated in the consciousness of people more, and the institutions less. And and it's in those periods uh, through history too that we we would find correlated with that um, awakenings, as we call them, great the first the first and second great awakenings, but different. Awakenings of that sort. That's what they term this uh, coming out of a high. There's then this, uh, this awakening period and the, the individual begins to be um, a little bit more elevated in their thinking. The third turning is in an unraveling. And that's really just uh, taking all of that off. You know, deregulation um, and uh, scaling down, you know, government and that sort of thing. The mood of this era is uh, is is actually opposite the high. And 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 what's what's interesting is we would think about either of these as being the good old days, depending on who you you know who, who lived them. But the fifties and that that era being the golden age for some the 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 '80s being another for, for others, <laughs> yeah. Bring back the uh, big hair and, but but they're they're actually diametrically opposed in terms of um, the high, uh, as they term it. Has institutions are strong, individuals individualism is weak. And in the unraveling, it's exactly the the opposite. The the individual is at a high, and the institutions are are weak. And then the fourth turning is a crisis. And this is an era where uh, America's institutional life is totally reshaped. And this has been true down through history. And again, one of the reasons I... I wanted to share this. I find this uh, very, very illuminating because, uh, well, not so much because they wrote this book in 1997, observed this historical pattern, and then made predictions about what was going to happen in the years to come. And it's uncanny, in some ways, how accurate it was in just describing the era. And they were saying there's there's always these four turnings, and after the third turning always comes a fourth turning, and the fourth turning is is a generation-long crisis, or it is a, a, a generation that is characterized by crisis, in fact, in that book, in their first book in 1991, they referred to the crisis of 2020. They called it, which was uh, interesting. They uh, they they said uh, in hindsight they really weren't pointing that at, uh, out as a as an exact date necessarily, but just saying uh, for the for the sake of um, some frame of reference that around that time that that's what they. Predicted would unfold. But they said um, in the fourth turning, they said uh, it would be sometime around the year 2005, perhaps a few years before or after, we'll enter the fourth turning. And in 2008, we had the great financial crisis that you all know changed the mood of the country, right? And, it, and, it, and, it, and there were other things going on at that time. But, um, but it played out exactly the way they were describing. Not that they would claim to be... These are historians, not like prophets, okay? I mean, they wouldn't claim this to be a sort of a word from heaven. They're just reading history, interpreting history, and then playing that forward, forecasting how that uh, ordinarily plays out. And so the, the great uh, financial crisis of 08 was the catalyst that ushered in this fourth turning, this crisis sort of generation. It was overlaid, as you remember, with terror threats that were already going on, right? All the homeland security stuff that was changing the way we lived uh, even already with, you know, airline, uh, airport procedures and all that kind of stuff that we had never had to deal with before. There were military deployments in the Middle East going on at that time. There was increasing political polarization. There had been political polarization before that. (laughs) But the chasm sort of got wider and wider uh, and and more and more hostile over, just over a period of time. It just kept moving farther and farther apart. And then, of course, in 2020, we had the pandemic, racial unrest, protests, uh, riots, and so forth. And uh, so Neil Howe has had a lot of speaking engagements <laughs> in, in recent years as people have read that book and said, oh, my word, this is... Uh, this is playing out just like you said. As a matter of fact, one of the scenarios that they gave as a potential catalyst event was a pandemic. It turned out actually not to be the, the catalyst, but it has certainly been a defining uh, sort of sub-season of this whole period. But if, if history repeats itself in a familiar uh, pattern, in this familiar pattern, then we could say a, a few things about our present and their the near future. Number one, that we are in the midst of a generation-long crisis. Well, we know that's been true up to this point anyway, right? We know that's been true. Not, not that, not that by, by the way, that all of life is, is, is uh, defined that way, right? It's not like, I mean, you probably had a, you probably had a nice day yesterday, I'd probably be messing up your weekend right now just by even mentioning this stuff. I mean, in other words, it's not like, it's not like this is constantly the, 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 the worst it could be or anything, but, it's, but, but, but we've certainly lived in a generation thus far where the mood has been defined by, more by crisis. Uh, what this would also predict, though, is that because it's a generation-long crisis, that that generation extends uh, really to about the end of the decade. The second thing that predicts is that the climax of the crisis may be yet to come. In fact, what I would tell you, and I, again, I've really, I've really not known exactly how I wanted to uh, speak to any of this because I, I, I'm just wired to be an optimist anyway, um, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna find the you know the silver lining if there's one to be found, um, although I'll notice the other linings as well. But I mean, I'm looking for uh, you know what's the hope forward sort of thing. But I, I so I've I've not been exactly sure how I wanted to um, you know to address this because I know people find uh, find it easy enough to be discouraged and hopeless, you know. But here's the reality of it. Again, I think it's to shine light on what. What's going on? What in the world is going on? And here's what's going on. Is that this is unfolding as it has historically unfolded. And if it continues, the climax uh, may be yet to come. And historically, that climax has been wars. If you go back 80 years, if you leap back 80 years at a time, you go World War II, Civil War, American Revolution, Glorious Revolution, Uh, They actually trace this in Anglo-American history, not just American history, since 1485. Um, There's a pattern at at play, you know, down through a longer history than that. This this whole generational dynamic, but just the way it plays out in Anglo-American history has been been a, a subject of their study. But the climax of the crisis may still be out ahead. Now, I still, I've been saying, and I mean it, and I still mean it today, I'm like, I'm looking forward to 2022, and I'm ready to leave all this garbage from the last couple of years in the rearview mirror. Like, I'm ready to move on. But in saying that, um, we ought not to sort of think wishfully as if we live happily ever after, and everything's going to be great and glorious, and... Uh, 2022 and beyond like it used to be it may not be like it used to be and there may be more uh, crisis out ahead but then the third thing is beyond the crisis is renewal and hope and a bright future this is this is part of this historical pattern that it always looks like it's the end of the world coming I mean, think about those crises I just mentioned. I mean, World War II, Hitler, uh, that looked very ominous and apocalyptic, right? Civil War, Revolutionary War, and so forth. It looks dark and hopeless. And, you know, at some point, it really will be the end, and Jesus really will come back. And we ought always to be ready for that. Amen to that? Like we ought always to be ready for that. Uh, and we ought to be prepared for whatever um, circumstances precede that in a way that we can be prepared. Uh, so, so at some point, it will be the end. But again, what I'm saying is this, th- this historical four turnings uh, of history, it always looks that way. There always is a crisis, and there's always a new golden age that follows it. And see, that's hard for some people to see right now. You can't even imagine what it would look like if not like the old days. But there, there, is, there is every reason uh, to be optimistic in that way, to be, to be looking forward to a bright future ahead for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Not to despair for them, but to be optimistic and hopeful. And I think there are any number of uh, implications here for what, how should we then pray into this and what should we do even, even as we go into 2022. Because like I said, there are ways in which we need to be watch, uh, wise and watchful. But there are also ways in which uh, we we ought to be optimistic and hopeful. And I don't remember as I look down how exactly I was going to plan to tie all that together because that's where my brain is this morning. But... um, I guess this this is one of the uh, uh, one of the thoughts to remind you to, to think about kind of what's being set up for the future that uh, all those things I just mentioned in this past generation sort of flowing underneath that has been technological change of just staggering proportions right I mean it's already changed the way that we lived and by the way may change the way uh, even this crisis plays out uh, and the whole fourth turning thing. It's his, history changing, uh, technological change has transpired in, you know, in recent years. But it's, it's kind of laid the groundwork for, for a whole new um, world, if you will, for the younger generations to build for themselves in. Generations to come, generations not even yet born, in fact. And so, so, so much has been, so much has been transpiring. And as I said last week, it's God's Plan A. It's God's Plan A. He's not on Plan B. He's not. He's not called uh, his. You know, council together. His cabinet. You know. To say, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? And he's working it all together for good. And perhaps in some ways that we can't even imagine. But as I said, I think uh, we're, we'll, we'll end up sort of tying a bow around uh, this, part two of this, and then, and then next week, consider some of the more practical things about um, what shall we do, how shall we pray in light of, you know, those realities. That the climax of the crisis may be still out ahead of us, and yet there's still reason to be optimistic and hopeful uh, in spite of that. How do we respond? How do we pray in light of that? We'll we'll take that up some next week, but let's let's pray. Lord, we do take comfort and confidence in the fact that you are Lord, that you are sovereign, that you are working all things together for good always. Lord, I thank you that that's true. in the course of human history and in our day. Lord, I thank you that it's true today that somehow even that you can work uh, this message together for good, uh, for, for the good of your people, in spite of, um, in spite of myself. But Lord, we do lift our eyes to heaven to rejoice at the things heaven rejoices at. So Lord, would you give us heavenly lenses to put on to view the world that we might see what you want us to see.